ways. And so this morning we're going to be looking in John chapter 4. And we're looking at uh, what's typically known as the Samaritan woman. But before we get there, let me see if I can set the stage a little bit. I don't know uh, if you guys have uh, ever been to, to young kids' birthday parties, but we've had a few through our day. And back in my day, it was called pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, but because we had young girls, it was put the bow on the princess, I think. Uh, whatever. But it's, it's the same type of thing. So what you do is you'd blindfold these kids and you'd give them a tail. And then you'd spin them around <laughs> like 10 times. And then you'd see who could get closest to the end of the donkey. And whoever got closest won. It just seemed like often it was a bit of guesswork. So you'd, you'd try and set them up straight and, and they'd wobble back and forth. Some would be close to the donkey. Some would even be near the donkey. But uh, they would do the best they could. It was all fun and games. Just a great bird. They came just for laughs. But I wonder if, if that's how often we feel like life. So sometimes it, it sense, or at least the sense that I have, is that we feel a bit blindfolded. The world or life has spun us around, and we're just hoping that we're on target, <laughs> right? We're, we're hoping that we're at least even close to the, the place that we need to be. I, I want to suggest to you this morning that that entire paradigm is part of what Jesus is going to be blowing up here, that it's going to be pushing against those places of, of blindness or confusion or feeling spun around in such a way we're not even sure necessarily where we're going. And, and in the process of those things, Jesus meets those moments and begins to move us beyond them. So if you will, I'd love for you to, if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them to John chapter 4. And before I jump into reading the text, I want to I give you something in John chapter 3 that I think fundamentally sets the stage. And, and I don't know if you have a, a writing implement or whatever, but I would circle chapter 3, verse 34. Highlight it, underline it. Here's where I think Jesus is going to be near the field of Jacob um, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, and he gave uh, he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't, uh, will not go thirsty or have to hear. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one now that you have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am. 
I who you speak to am he. You get this really intriguing encounter that's set up in a very strategic and tactical way. So at the beginning of these verses, you get this communication that Jesus had to go to Samaria. This isn't an issue of geography. Because often, when Jews would be traveling, they would go around Samaria because they realized that culturally and um, cleanliness-wise, the Samaritans are people that they don't want to have any dealings with. So things had happened throughout the course of history that had led to a significant distinction between Jews and Samaritans. And Samaritans were considered half-breeds, individuals that culturally and racially did not connect with Jews. And so they wanted nothing to do with them. And yet, the Bible tells us that Jesus had to go to Samaria. This, I think, the text is communicating to us that this is a divine appointment. He had to go because he had to meet with her. Because he could have gone a totally separate way, but he went directly to this place, Sychar, where this well was that had a huge amount of religious history, this worship where where Joseph had been given this plot of land by Jacob, and Jacob had built this well, and it had provided water for those who were thirsty and the thirsty Israelites for generations. And then there had been this distinction between Jews and Samaritans, and because of that, now the Samaritans would come and be, be filled with those who were thirsty and take water from this well. It was a place where they saw God's provision for them. Just the practical reality of God's presence and taking care of the needs of his people. And they had gone to get well, well water daily. But what we know of this text is it tells us that she was there at a pretty unique hour. Because most of the time, all the other women would go in the morning. They would go in a group of other women and begin to provide for themselves and get provide for their family this water during the early morning because in the heat of the day is the worst time to go. You're parched, you're tired, but not this woman. She went in the middle of the day. Why? Shame. There was a level of a reality that her decision-making, the history of what she had lived in the course of her life had led to the place where she was no longer part of the in crowd. So not only was she a Samaritan who had no dealings with Jews and already felt like someone who was an outsider, but even amongst Samaritans, because of her poor decision-making, she was an outsider of outsiders. She was not able to belong to anyone. So she went in the middle of the day because no one else would be there. Isolation, loneliness, pain management was the order of her life. The Bible tells us that she had five husbands and a live-in lover. The best that we can garner from this situation is that she had used relationships as a source of her security. She had hoped, beyond hope, that somehow she could just get through this life and whatever she had to give up to do so, she would have some level of security, some hope that some relationship would last, that she could maybe, just maybe, be chosen for the long term doesn't tell us why those other marriages didn't work, but there's a sense in which that loneliness would continue to mount. She had been discarded. Not once, not twice, 
Not three times, not four, not five, and maybe even potentially a sixth. The way that our track record is running. I mean, if anything would be able to tell us that somehow in some way this was going to be her story, predictably, anybody that would see her journey and know what she was about, it's likely that this would not have been the last one. Relationships were the only place that she felt mildly hopeful. But loneliness was the order of the day for her. She traveled by herself in the heat of the day to go to this well to be alone. Couldn't handle the the mocking and the scorning and even the, the side glances and the looks of all of the disapproval of the people around her knowing that she didn't fit in. Living alone was easier than living in the midst of community. Shame was a common friend for her. Jesus had to go. Jesus had to go to that place to intrude with his presence into that picture of struggle and life. Hardship, the suffering, even if she would tell her story, it would be filled with failures and few successes. Jesus had to go. I wonder if maybe, just maybe, if we took a second and looked at our own journey and wondered what the backlog of our own pain and our current position would be. That there are places that maybe we're not going to the well in isolation, but maybe there's places that we're living in silence. Fearful that if people knew what we knew about ourselves and we know that God knows about us, we would be immediately discarded and rejected right off the bat. We find ourselves wondering if loneliness and desperation are constant companions more so than hope and peace and the presence that God promises us. It's that moment that I want us to peer into because I think we need to look at how grace intrudes. I mean, that's the order of the day really as we look at this text is that grace is intrusive. There's no subtleness to how Jesus moves into this situation. He is there sitting at this well asking a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman for something to drink using her own bucket that she brought. It is unheard of that a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman would drink from the same cup as a Jew and a Jewish man and a Jewish rabbi. There is just intrusiveness all over this place. He is moving into the very confines of this woman's experience and beginning to dismantle all of it from her religious notions to the understandings of herself to every aspect of her life. Grace is intruding. He offer a few examples of how I think grace intrudes and what it does. When grace intrudes, it dismantles or removes excuses. You can see initially when Jesus enters into this woman's life, he begins to address the very things that would separate her from him and him from her. And she has, like she she can pull these out of her back pocket with just utter ease. Well, here's the reasons why this can't happen. Here's the reasons why this doesn't work. Here's the reasons why you and I must remain distant and separate from one another. And they all sound really good. 
But the intrusion of grace displaces excuses. What what are yours? Uh, Your excuses, that is. Those places where you would say to yourself, no way can, can God enter into this. No way can my identity be different. There's a level of brokenness or addiction or fear or frustration that has been such a constant companion that I don't know a life outside of it. And I've, I've, I've prayed. I've asked for God to remove it. But then I continue to go back to those places that I nourish. (laughs) I've prayed that I would just be free and God would just take it away. And yet, I find myself longing to go back there time and time again. Augustine said it this way. My problem was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but myself and his other creatures. The search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. I think what we get as we see Jesus intruding into the life of this Samaritan woman that culturally they would say that there was no reason that they should interact. There's a level of separation. Her sin had separated her. There's so many different components that lead her to to be separated from, from Jesus, and yet he has a divine appointment. He had to go to Samaria because he He cares. Somehow, in some way, he he saw her history and the pain that she had been experiencing and intruded in such a way that had he not intruded, her life would have continued to be the life that she had predicted. Constant relationship after relationship. Isolation after isolation. Loneliness after loneliness. And yet, with the intrusion of Jesus, he displaces all of those excuses. That he's orchestrated things in such a way to meet with this woman. I don't think it's far-fetched to suggest that God has orchestrated all of your life for you to be here right now. That there is something that we are excusing ourselves away from or some place that we're hoping God doesn't penetrate or some level of boundaries we've placed on our own heart and the intrusion of grace, it, it, it displaces those excuses. And it communicates to us that there is sight by God himself to see what we're going through. The loneliness isn't seen and done in isolation. Other people might see it, but the God of the universe is certainly aware of it. And what does he move in with? Great theological truth. More Bible knowledge. Maybe. Here he moves into it with himself. Which is ultimately the reality of this whole story is that when we talk about the intrusion of grace, we're talking about Jesus getting inside and moving and meddling and changing and transforming human hearts and human stories in tremendous and unbelievable and miraculous ways. Why? Because we know that at least in part, the intrusion of grace displaces excuses. I just recently uh, finished a book called The Change of Affections. It's written by a gentleman named Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook grew up in a Christian home but through the process of his own experience, de- dealt with some same-sex attraction. And in the process of those things, he became just convinced that that was his identity. Distanced himself from his relationship with his family, although they continued to pray for him. He became incredibly well-known as a, uh, a, a production designer in Hollywood. 
He was the go-to guy for all of these things. Prestige, success, all of these components were his story. He's at a coffee shop one day with someone that he was dating, his, his boyfriend. He overheard a, a group of people that were reading the Bible and just talking, just, just talking about God's stuff. And he felt compelled to go and ask more about what they really believed. And they began to share and talk. And one of the guys just invited him to church. And in the process of that, his, his, his wrestling began as to, I know what they're going to tell me in church. They're only going to tell me that I'm wrong and I'm sinful and I'm destined for hell. And there's no way that they're going to really love me. Right? Excuses after excuses after excuses. In the process of that, he trusted the prompting and went to church. He describes this event in his book. He's saying that he sat there, and as they were singing songs that he was unfamiliar with, and the pastor was preaching, there was just this weight that came over his heart, so much so that he had realized that all of these things and all of this identity and all the infrastructure that he had built around himself to prove to the world about what his identity was, began to just fall apart, began to just weep. And what he realized is that his affections began to change. All he wanted was to know Jesus and what Jesus wanted of him. Here's how he describes it. The overwhelming wonder of God's infinite love is this. While I was broken and a failure, God came to rescue me. He came to love me, to redeem me, and to heal me from sin. Where I failed, Christ succeeded on my behalf. Where I distrusted, Christ was faithful. Where I proudly resisted, he humbly surrendered. Through his obedience, he bridged the chasm between my darkness and his light. On the cross, God's son took my place and became a sacrifice for all my failures. In his resurrection, he triumphed over all my destruction. And now he stands as my victorious redeemer. Offering me and all who will simply receive him his forgiveness and vindication. Christ clothes my shame and brokenness which is with his righteous, holy life. Now, you don't hear those stories all that frequency, but it's, it's the Samaritan woman all over again. Captured by a predictability of what they think life is going to be and they're just living it out. Pinning the tail on the donkey, walking blindly, dizzy by the chaos of the world. They're just trying to manage sin and manage their own story. But the intrusion of grace displaces excuses. But the intrusion of grace also displaces shame. Here's what happens in this story, right? She has all of these excuses that continue to mount. And then she begins to communicate about the fact that that somehow, in some way, there is something intriguing about what Jesus is saying. And, and Jesus says in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Man, already identity shift, affection change, transformation. It's di displacing not only exclusive excuses but displacing shame but but still there's some level of struggle that she faces because she thinks that if she buys into this living water 
her life will be easier. Look what she says. She says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Then I will not be thirsty and I don't have to come and draw water anymore. Right? Like if I just come to Jesus and drink from what he tells me I can drink from, then my life is easier. I don't have to walk in the middle of the day, this road of shame and isolation. I can just drink, stay at home. Life will be easier and I won't have to deal with my junk. <laughs> I wonder how many of us in some categories of our life, I placed our faith in Jesus Christ, hoping that that would be the case. Like, just take away this stuff, make my life easier. I'm all set. I'm in. And if the text ended there, you would wonder if that was the case. But it doesn't, does it? Jesus said, now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. You would think that he would just say, okay, let's go ahead and just work through some misplaced understandings of what you're really hoping for, and I'll just change your hopes and tell you more about what this is about. Nope. Jesus goes right to the idols of her heart. He deals specifically with her sin. Doesn't diminish it, doesn't wipe it under the rug, doesn't sweep it away. He exposes it, but not in the context of shame. You see, that's where grace is grace, right? When grace intrudes, it exposes sin for what it is, but in an environment where there's redemption from that sin, not a sweeping it under the rug. Jesus doesn't pat her on the back and say, hey, it's okay. I know you had a hard time and made bad decisions. You'll do better next time. That's not what he does at all. He draws it all out. He says, go and call your husband. He says, I don't got one. He's like, you're absolutely 100% right. That's an accurate assessment. You don't. You've had five, and now you're with the living lover. So in the process of those things, what does she say? I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's pretty clear. Right? You can see what I see, and you know about my story, which is intriguing because she doesn't even tell him the story. He knows it beforehand, thus divine appointment. And in the process of those things, what happens? She realizes or is growing to realize that Jesus showed up knowing what he knew. His, her sin didn't distance Jesus from entering in. It drew him close. Now, come on now. As followers of Christ, how unsettling and unbelievably miraculous is that reality. That if, if sin didn't push Jesus away, but drew him close because God had come to set the captives free, right? That Jesus is here to be able to provide liberty and freedom from the context of our mismanaged sin. Then Jesus intrudes into her life, sees and shows the truth of her sin... And then through the promise of the intrusion of grace, displaces shame. But it also displaces our own version of our own story. <laughs> That's something that we need to sit on. Because at the end of the day, when we think about the narrative, she knows about the isolation. She knows about her sin. Apparently, other people know about her sin. I mean, how can you have five husbands and the community around you not know that you go through men like chewing gum? You don't know. And we don't even know the context or the emotions. We only know the events and the deeds done. And yet, in the process of those things, what we do get is the intrusion of grace 
knows the heart and the reality of what God is deeply doing in her life. So, so the intrusion of grace displaces excuses. It displaces shame. It, it displaces our own version of our own story. But then look what he tells her in the context of these things. He tells her that there will be a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And in the process, that's going to lead to worship. He's telling her that there's a time coming and is now here where faithful followers not worship in a location, but they'll worship with motives. They'll worship with a heart. They'll worship in spirit and in truth. So here, what, what is he ultimately saying? I think he's telling us that grace received is grace supplied. So that those who have received grace, there's this image that he's giving the Samaritan woman. And as John relates the story, even giving it to us. And that sense is, this isn't going to be a place where the, the wells that you've always gone to to find provision and satisfaction for your life, whether it's Jacob's well for water, or relationships for significance, or computers for some desire of gratification, or money for security, whatever those wells might be, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive an intrusion of grace. But then we receive this spirit, this reality of a spring of living water where now grace is supplied. So that those very things that we've gone to and those very places of significance and satisfaction no longer hold sway. Why? Because we're being fed and nourished and supplied by a spring of living water that is giving us and welling up to eternal life. So he's telling us, here's the trajectory. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ as grace received. Trusting Christ in the every area of our life is grace supplied. That the affections begin to change. That our desires for the things of what we used to look to, to carry our attention and hold our affections, no longer have that impact. And God begins to move us to a place where he's the sole source. So our longing is for him above and beyond the things of this world. That if there's any security to be found in this world, it's in Christ. If there's any love to be found in this world, it's in Christ. If there's any hope to be found in this world, it's in Christ. If there's any peace to be found in this world, it's in Christ. Grace received is grace supplied. What we need, church, is more of Jesus. What we need is to, to be drawn to this place of realizing that the shame that marks our story as grace intrudes, displaces that shame and gives us Jesus. Jesus isn't, moves away from our sin. He's drawn to us so that we can be freed from our sin and it wells up to eternal life. Our goal is not just fire insurance where we'd hope that at the end of the day we just go to heaven and everything else is great and whatever life is looking like life looks like until we get to heaven. Right here, right now, in this moment, Jesus is offering you himself, welling up to a life with Jesus for eternity. That our affections are growing and changing and, and drawn to this desire so that when we find ourselves worshiping in the throne room of heaven, we're worshiping the objects of our affections that we've grown to love in this world. Jesus himself. Because grace received is grace supplied. He is enough. 
and more than enough. You just finish with reminding us of chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. There's no limits to the work and the substance and the joy that God is going to provide in a relationship with him. Displaces excuses, displaces shame, displaces our own version of our own lives and gives us himself. Because grace received is grace supplied. As we move in, and I'm going to pray. Praying our video works. It's going to be one of my prayer requests. Because that's Kathy's story. It's the Johnson story of tremendous, difficult suffering, but an even bigger reality of God's provision and grace. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and kindness today. We thank you that grace is tangible. We thank you that through the power of your Holy Spirit, your grace intrudes into our life and displaces all of those things that we've tried to do to manage our own sin. And in replacement, you give us yourself, which is more than we could ever ask or imagine. So we trust you, and we pray for your continued work to be done. In Christ's name, amen. Um, my name is Kathy Johnson, and um, my husband Ian and I have been going to church here for 23 years, and that's along with our boys Ryan and uh, Mark and Will. And you guys all know Will or Mark, you know Will and Mark. Anyway, um, but what you don't know is that 30 um, some years ago, um, before Ryan was born, uh, we lost our first daughter, or our only daughter, Brittany. And uh, she was born with uh, congenital heart disease, uh, pulmonary uh, atresia. And so we thought we had a perfectly healthy baby girl. And um, then six hours after she was born, uh, there's a hole that's in the heart or in the lungs that, uh, by, or in the heart that bypasses the lungs. And um, when, it's, when the baby's in vitro and then once the baby's born, that naturally closes. And so as that started to close up, uh, Brittany started to turn blue and she wasn't getting any oxygen. And so we realized there was a problem. And so the next day they had open heart surgery or heart surgery and the doctor popped a, or poked a hole through there and that was enough for her so that she could go on and they could get some blood into the lungs. And so she, would go up and down at the hospital and it was a hard two weeks and uh, a lot of prayers, a lot of people praying and finally uh, we were able to take her home and went home and had her home for about five and a half, six months and then realized that she needed another surgery and so when we went in for the second surgery um, she uh, looked great right afterwards but then had some other complications and problems and uh, on September 22nd she went to see the Lord and it was a very hard time and even though it's been a long time since it happened going back over it all kind of 
brings up old memories and it's it's still hard um, but I know I know God had a reason he didn't answer that miracle for us he didn't let Brittany stay and grow up with us but in the process we we had a bond together in and I and um, I felt like that was unbreakable um, Ian's the only person that actually went through the same things that I did and so I knew even if I didn't talk about it um, he knew what I was feeling and so and vice versa so uh, anyway our marriage you know he had to put up with a lot of stuff from me because I I had a hard time with losing Brittany and, and as did he but even after God brought us Ryan which I thought was a wonderful blessing and I had to start taking care of myself again um, I kind of devoted myself to Ryan and being a mom to him and uh, kind of sometimes left in out on the side a little bit and I'm sure he knew that and but I, I found my way back at least and I think as, as a mom I loved on Ryan and I think I became a better wife to Ian and he's been strong through it all um, and Ryan grew up and I think he felt loved and everything and he was kind of our only child until he was about six and um, then God blessed us with Mark and we had tried for Mark for a couple years but um, and then it just happened so it's all all God's timing and um, so we had two wonderful boys that we loved, and then we were blessed with Will uh, three or four years later. And we've been very fortunate and uh, have had them, and um, they've been great kids, and they've been wonderful to have, and they haven't caused very many problems. And so as a parent, we feel extremely blessed that uh, we've had such good luck with them. <laughs> but I feel like part of it is you know the people that we've been here most of the time and people here in the church and and Jared you've you've been wonderful in Mark's life and and you've touched all three of our boys lives you're you're in all three of them now and uh, you know there's just been people that have helped them along the way and and helped us and we just have gotten stronger through this and I just know that there's lots of lots of people that um, have been through struggles and are struggling maybe each day and don't realize you know or other people don't realize that they're they're having a hard time with something you know I have hard times on uh, Brittany's birthday and on the day that she died but that's not something that's you know you don't celebrate those days and so nobody knows when those days come around but they're still hard days now people in a family have learned over the years that you know, if you shoot me a little message on those days, that's that's okay. That's pretty nice to know. And and we've had other experiences where Ian's cousin lost a child, and maybe that's when they started learning this was because we started telling them that you know it was always nice when somebody said something or something happened. Um, one of my favorite verse or songs that I would sing to Brittany when she was a baby was on Eagle's Wings, and. Um, I would sing that all the time, and then there was one, one day, uh, years after she was had died, and 
we were singing it here at church and my sisters knew that was an important song to me because I had it at her funeral but somebody at another church had it sung to them also and so they had called me and said that they they had that very same song the same day and it was just kind of a you know God's still still holding us in his hands and he's still taking care of us even now and it's always nice to know never um, after she died I, I never felt like God had abandoned me in any way um, I always felt like I was sad and disappointed but but you know he was still he was still there I was never even really angry with him just knew I was disappointed it wasn't wasn't what I wanted but in the end you know he had another plan and I've got three wonderful boys out of it and that that in the end has been wonderful and they I just pray that they go off and do things for God and all to the glory of God and that's that's all that that matters and again I'm, I'm Kathy Johnson I've, I've been here for almost 24 years and um, I've never felt abandoned by God and I just feel like he's he's always been there for us and um, we come out stronger in the end and I just praise God for everything Thank you.